Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 1 this morning. This is a a study that we're going to begin. It's the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. This is the story, really, of how God saves His people for His own glory. Now, people will say that a picture is worth a thousand words. When you come to the book of Exodus, there's, there's a thousand pictures. Therefore, there's a thousand, thousand words that tell us about the spiritual realities that are taking place. And the Exodus is a physical picture of that. And as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, if you were with us when we studied the book of Genesis, it's, it's been about a year ago, you'll remember that Christ is all over the book of Genesis. And you will be no less disappointed, you will be no, no disappointment at all when you come to Exodus, because Christ is all over the pages of the book of Exodus. He is foretold, He is foreshadowed, He is present in signs and wonders and word. As we read the text before us, I want you to notice the providence of God that's woven throughout the story. Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, here is God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, and Gad, and Asher. All these descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed... The more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Here's God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are not wise to understand your truth. 
We pray that your spirit would speak to us. That you would show us your word and instruct us in what we should know. We just pray for ears to hear what your spirit would say to your people. And I ask, Father, that you would be willing to use a a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is really the story that defines the existence of the nation of Israel. It's an epic which explains the reason that this one nation came into existence. The story of the Exodus is, in fact, the story upon which the rest of the Old Testament is built. It is the quintessential story of God's deliverance and his power over evil. Some have said this is God's first great act of redemption. It's only going to be bettered by the great act of redemption which is ours in Christ. It's no wonder that this particular story is the story upon which the Hebrew people constantly look back as the forever proof of God's promises. A God who is faithful and fulfills every word that He ever said. And it is no wonder that this particular picture foreshadows our own deliverance from bondage in sin and our rescue to the new freedom which is ours in Christ. We close out Genesis and we saw that the, that the place of Egypt in Goshen was going to be a kind of holding place from which God's people would, would rise forth as a nation. If God doesn't take them there through Joseph, then there is no grand deliverance. If God doesn't allow them to be enslaved, separated down in Goshen, then they would intermarry. They would mingle with the people of Egypt and they would inherit all of those pagan practices and adopt them for themselves. Abraham's descendants and all the promises that were made to Abraham would be utterly and completely lost. God's hand is all over this story. Exodus means exit or departure. But slaves who are building bricks and suffering under hard labor cannot see that the Lord is ready to deliver them. They don't have eyes to see it at all. But God makes a clear distinction. These are my people. They belong to me. I will take care of them. They must follow me. And in Christ, God says the exact same thing to you. He says, you belong to me. He says, I will take care of you. Follow me. And yet, like the Hebrew people, there are times when you don't feel like God takes care of you. Times when it seems that he doesn't see. And if he does see, you wonder why he doesn't act and relieve the burdens that are placed upon your shoulders. Most of the time, you don't even have any idea that it's a spiritual battle that's taking place. The evil one, Satan himself, wants to oppress you. And he will throw everything in his toolbox at you in order to make you feel a sense of oppression. Because Satan, just like Pharaoh, is utterly threatened by God's people. And so when you read the book of Exodus in chapter 1, you almost hear God say, Satan, you can throw everything in your toolbox at my people, but my providence and my power will reign so much so that I will use everything that you throw at them to bring good for my little ones and glory for myself. This is the God who sees. 
all things. This is the God who knows all things and governs all things, even those things which seem to press hard upon you. And it's with steadfast love that God says, I promise I will take care of you no matter what the evil one throws at you. Acts of oppression against God's people always fail. Now, in verses 1 through 7, it speaks of the Genesis promise fulfilled. Verses 8 through 14, Pharaoh's purpose failed. Verse 15 through 22, it's a tone of humor, reveals Pharaoh fooled. So let's begin with a promise fulfilled. When God created man in his own image, Genesis chapter 1, he gave him a wife whose name was Eve and he gave them a charge. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It was God's intention that the man and the woman would bear children and every successive child born of them would bear the image of God. So that the whole world would be full of the knowledge and glory of God. They were to reflect him in creation. It was a majestic design, but the man and the woman sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God spoke to them and gave them the first promise of a coming Savior. God cursed the serpent, the evil one. And he said, the seed of this woman will crush your head even as you strike at his heel. And yet from Adam forward, the image of God still present but marred by sin is there in every successive generation. So sin increased from Adam to Noah and every generation died as a consequence. And chapter 5 tells you that like the beating of a drum. Until the days of Noah. Genesis 6.6, 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But then the Bible says that he showed grace and favor to one man. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God destroyed the whole world with a flood And only Noah and his family survived. And on the other side of the the destruction, God spoke again of his creation design. A world full of image bearers who would shine like light in this world. Genesis 9.1 God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they were fruitful. And they did multiply and they did fill the earth, but the problem of sin is still there. At Babel, Genesis 11, the people of the world come together and they want to make a name for himself. Not themselves, not for the glory of God, but for their own glory. And so Genesis chapter 11, they say, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. And they are nowhere close to God. They're nowhere close to any sort of glory. God has to come down and find their tiny staircase. And God says, no. I will not let man seek glory for himself. The glory belongs to me. And so from Noah 
And his son, Shem, the Bible takes us down the family line to a man named Abram, a pagan. Nobody's worshiping God in Ur of the Chaldees. But God, in his grace, comes to Abram. And with Abram, he says, I'm going to make new promises. Promises that hinge not on frail men, but on the faithfulness of me, God Almighty. Abram, get up, leave your father's house, go to the place where I tell you. And then he says in Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the world will be blessed. At Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves. With Abram, God says, I'm going to make a name for you as long as it is connected to me. I'm going to forge a covenant. You trust me. Ten years later, still waiting. Abram says, God, how can I be sure that you're faithful? And God says, go outside. Look at the stars. Count them if you can. So shall your offspring be. The Bible says, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God said, look at the land that's in front of you. I'm going to give you that land. God, how do I know for sure that you're going to give me the land? God said, go get a heifer and a goat and a ram and a few birds and kill them and split them in half and put them on the ground. And all of that seems so odd to us as we read. Abraham knows exactly what God's doing. God's going to make a relationship with me and we're going to forge a covenant and we're going to lock arms and we're going to walk between these torn animals. And the message that we're going to say together today, if I break my covenant, I'll die. You break your covenant, you die. Before Abraham can ever walk between the torn pieces, God puts him to sleep and says, if I break the covenant, I'll die. If you break the covenant, I'll die for that too. Moreover, Genesis 15 says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. His descendants are going to go down to Egypt. 25 years later, From that first promise of a son, we finally get one child born to old man Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, and his name is Isaac. So waiting for a nation, we have one boy. And those same promises are passed to this son, Isaac, who through Rebekah just gives birth to two. And God chooses to carry his promises through Jacob Deceitful, conniving, lying, polygamist Jacob. And you remember Jacob's sons. Reuben, the adulterer, the incestuous who took his father's wife and slept with her. Simeon and Levi, the savage, reckless ones who in anger kill all the men of Shechem. And then after showing so much favoritism, To Joseph, Jacob's sons get angry and they hatch a plan to kill him. No, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him. 
Because then at least we can get some money out of it. And so every brother, with the exception of Benjamin, goes along with the plan. And that lie of a dead brother festers for 23 years. In the meantime, Judah stops at the roadside to visit a prostitute. And tricked, he impregnates his own daughter-in-law. These are the fine people that the Lord has chosen to use from which to build a nation. None of them could have been saved because of anything that they've ever done to earn God's favor. They couldn't be because they're every bit as flawed and sinful as you and me. They will never be saved. They will never be saved unless God fulfills his promise. Exodus 1 picks up on all of that background. These are the people that God chose to save for his own glory. Verses 1 through 6 tells us that God brought all of these brothers and their entire families down to Egypt so that where Genesis ends, God's faithfulness is really just getting started. How can you tell? Because the precise words of verse 7 are meant to tell you that the charge that was given to Adam and to Noah has now been fulfilled. Look at it. Exodus 1, 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. A promise fulfilled. Throughout Genesis, there are constant threats to the first promise of a son who would be born from the seed of a woman, one who would crush the head of the serpent. But as soon as Cain kills his brother brother Abel, the promise is in jeopardy. As soon as God destroys the world, the promise is in jeopardy. As soon as Abraham tries to pawn off his wife, not once but twice, the promise is in jeopardy. As soon as Isaac does the exact same thing, the promise is in jeopardy. And every single story through Genesis, when you meet these wicked sons, the promise is in jeopardy. And as soon as the famine comes, the promise is in jeopardy. And as soon as they're spared from the famine through Joseph in Egypt, the promise is in jeopardy. I mean, they have to move 1,268 miles from the promised land. The whole thing's in jeopardy. Exodus 1, 7 tells you that every single time the promise is threatened, God, through providence and sovereignty and power, places His hand on His people and fulfills precisely what He intended to accomplish. So that out of that, a nation, exceedingly strong, Egypt is filled with Abraham's offspring. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that these things were written down as examples for us. And I wonder if today you are in circumstances that make you wonder where God is and what he is doing. And I wonder if you can see the point of verse 7. There's roughly 3,600 years between Adam and Moses. 3,600 years of God's faithfulness through stubborn, unfaithful people. 3,600 years. Where Satan throws every tool in his toolbox at God's people. 
3,600 years of the evil one striking at the seed of the woman. And God's promise is still fulfilled. And if God's providence and sovereignty and power can shine brightly through 3,600 years of the evil one's oppression, how could they possibly be dimmed in the 70 years of life that you have on the face of this earth? I want you to think through that rubric as we move through the next 39 chapters. God saves His people for His glory. He saves you for His glory. Acts of oppression against God's people always fail. And now the camera lens zooms down to the king of Egypt. They call him Pharaoh. Everybody in the whole nation thinks he's a god. And he thinks he's a god. Here's Pharaoh. And his purpose failed. He doesn't know Joseph. And everything's changed. But listen to the insecurity of this supposed God. Take a look at verse 9. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Here's the plan. Let's just enslave the entire nation. And we'll break them up into groups and we'll put captains over these labor gangs. And what's the goal? Break their back, undermine their strength, and by breaking their spirit, they'll go, I don't think we can fight. And verse 11 concludes by telling you how successful the plan was. The Hebrew people built two storage cities, but then look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Uh, The plan didn't work. The Egyptians, the mightiest nation on the face of the earth, and their petty god Pharaoh, are even more scared by their slaves. So Pharaoh walks over to the proverbial grill and he turns up the heat in order for Moses to explain precisely how intense the pressure got. Moses uses seven words. Now, Hebrew literature doesn't have exclamation marks. So one of the ways that Hebrew narrative seeks to try to draw emphasis to a point is by repetition and patterns like sevens and twelves and forties. And from that pattern in verse 13, you get a sense of how intense the grill is. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Hebrew scholars tell us that those seven words that all flow from the root word, which means serve or service or work, are meant to show the reader that the people of Israel feel Every strike and every blow. And they feel it because it stings. Striking God's people. You and I actually have the privilege of peering behind the curtain. Pharaoh's scared. And God sees it all. And in order to understand this passage and apply it 
We need to recognize that this really isn't just about Pharaoh. And the problem isn't a physical problem. Pharaoh, just like Satan, has engaged in a spiritual battle that he is destined to lose. Pharaoh reasons, look, if I don't put these Hebrews under slavery, if I don't press them hard, they're going to rise up and escape. The opposite is true. Charles Spurgeon says, in all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race. They would have lost their identity as God's special people because they were completely content to be in Egypt and to be Egyptianized. See, God knows what Pharaoh doesn't know. Enslaving them is actually the perfect way to mark out those he intends to save and to build in them a deep longing to be delivered. One writer said that suffering helps us to look for our Savior. And if we never had trouble along the journey, we would never have reason to long for heaven. Like the Israelites. We actually need the house of bondage to help drive us to the promised land. If you belong to Christ, I wonder if you recognize that Satan's purpose failed in you. That ruthless, bitter, hard service to the slave master sin was the one thing that the Lord used to wake you up and make you go, wait a second. I'm in chains. Brothers and sisters, some of you may be really frustrated with yourself because you keep failing. You keep sinning again and again. God will repeatedly use your failure to consistently point you to your Savior. It's not just your sin. You're oppressed by people, by circumstances, by trials. You're oppressed by a world that is woefully disappointing. But you can see the pattern. God always uses trials and oppressions and suffering to mark out His people and to make them long for the deliverance that only He can give. Pharaoh's purpose failed. He meant to enslave these people so that they would not escape his clutches, but he drove them into the arms of the Lord. Satan meant to enslave you in sin, and it drove you to cry out for Christ and go, God, help me. Satan means to crush you by pain and sorrow and discouragement, and it drives you to Christ because he's the only one that can help you. The only one who could ever deliver his people. Acts of oppression against God's people always fail. Promise fulfilled, purpose failed. We close with Pharaoh fooled, scared of losing them. Pharaoh does what he always does. He turns up the heat, and so he calls these two Hebrew midwives to come to him. And these are the women who help deliver all the Hebrew babies in Goshen, and they oversee probably other midwives. And he says, listen, here's the extermination plan. Now, Moses in Exodus one ignores the name of Pharaoh, the king. But he tells us the name of the two midwives, Shifra, which means 
beautiful one. And pua, which means splendid one. Look at verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. These two women that oversee all the birthing of babies in Goshen walk up to the man who has the weight of power and he looks at them and he says, kill the boys. I want you to remember this when we get to chapter 12. You will remember that it's Pharaoh who started this game of death. It is a game that he will lose. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Shifra and Puah do not look in the face of Pharaoh. They look in the face of God. Remember this. It is always the right thing. It is always the safest thing to fear God more than the mightiest of this world. So these two live up to their names. They're a splendid, beautiful example of faith. God's the author of life. Let no man or woman take the role of deciding on the death of a baby born or preborn. Abortion and infanticide are a high-handed attempt to destroy the work which God has created. I don't know how long it took. But the king begins to realize that the Hebrew people just keep having male children. It's time for a talk. Look at verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? You recognize he speaks as though they're actively disobeying. They're passively letting the children be born. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Is that true? Or is this a lie? This is the kind of conversation that occupies your Christian ethics class in seminary. And lots of writers have spilled lots of ink. Is it okay for a Christian to break the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness, in order to keep from breaking the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder? Augustine of Hippo, John Calvin himself, they both see this act as completely reprehensible because, of course, a lie is sin. I want to give you two comments. Number one, the Bible is incredibly honest. These are the kinds of decisions that God's people have to make in a world that's evil. Two options. Both are sin. What answer will I come to? What strikes most deeply at the heart of God? That's how you answer the question. Secondly, this particular portion of Scripture is filled with humor. I think it's really hard to see that in English. These two women, they look in the face of the man who wants to kill all of the Hebrew men because he's afraid of the Hebrew men rising up and overthrow him. And they look in the face of that king and they say, well, king, Hebrew women are just stronger than Egyptian women. 
So you see, the lie is also mocking. It's a jab. It's not the men you have to be worried about. It's the women. One pastor equated this dilemma to an occasion in France during World War II when one village of Reformed Protestants hid more than 5,000 Jews. A Nazi lieutenant comes and he knocks on the door where some of the Jews are hiding. The man answers the door and he says, Jews? What would Jews be doing in my house? The lieutenant continues to question. So the man at the door calls to his friend, Hey, have you seen any Jews around here? The man behind him says, You know, the, the Nazis say that Jews have crooked noses. No, I hadn't seen any crooked noses around here. And you recognize, of course, in that comment that the man in the back of the house is mocking the Nazis even as he says, no. The intention was to deceive. The purpose was to save a life. In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh is fooled and he's mocked all at the same time. And if you want to understand God's take on this moral dilemma, look at verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Did God record, excuse me, reward them for lying? No. He just affirms their faith. The people of Israel... And you and me as readers are meant to see the mightiest man on the face of the earth is so mighty that two little Hebrew midwives make him look like a fool. It's setting you up to be sure to know that this mighty man is putty in the hands of Almighty God. What do you face that is more threatening And is more ominous than Pharaoh. What do you fear that is more mighty than the hands of Satan himself? God says, they're all putty in my hands. Trust me and I will deliver you. Acts of oppression against God's people always fail. Because you belong to God. Through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.